The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And the rest of us, let's turn to Luke chapter 7. The passage that Peter just read is a passage that we're going to be hearing from today. And if you are like me, I don't know if you are, if you're like me and if you're like our family, we love the Olympics. Every two years, because we like the Winter Olympics too, every two years when it's on, we like to tune in and we keep the TV on a fair amount during the Olympics. Even when we were just in Montana last week, we had it on there so we could catch all the great sporting events. And if you're a mediocre athlete who peaked in eighth grade like me, then watching the Olympics is is just a lot of fun because you get to see all these finely tuned athletes who are just experts in their craft. And we really enjoy it and we want the kids to enjoy it as well. I mean, we just watch it all. We're watching the canoeing. We are watching uh, the BMX. We're watching men's diving. We're watching women's diving. We're watching women's volleyball. Well, Amy was a volleyball player in uh, college, so that makes sense. And we're just, we're watching it all. We're watching track and field. And if you watched track and field last night, Allison Felix, who is a believer, who loves the Lord Jesus, whose dad is a seminary professor, she now became the most decorated track and field athlete of all time, surpassing Carl Lewis, who had 10 uh, medals, and she now has 11. So it's just been a fun, exciting time for us. But we also noticed, at least I noticed this, especially last night, you get to hear the background stories of some of these athletes. And when you hear these things in the background stories, you might sometimes hear about their training regimen and the differences in their training and what they do and how they eat and so on. We saw, heard this especially in men's diving last night. There's a difference between how the Chinese team trains and the team from Great Britain trained, and that came out during their, uh, as, during their diving that they were doing last night. And it, what happens is, is that the training that you're going through and the regimen that you go through and the, the nutrition that you take into your body, all of that is vindicated, you could say, on the podium, isn't it? That's where all that training comes to bear. Who, what, how, the technique that you use, the way that you approached your training, that is vindicated on that podium, first, second, or third place, gold, silver, or bronze. Similarly, the same way that training is vindicated by the fruit it produces, so is a ministry vindicated by the fruit that it produces. And we're going to see that very thing in today's passage in the the ministry of John and Jesus. That is going to be, in fact, we can even look at the, the ending statement here in verse 35. That really is a key to unlocking the passage. Yet wisdom is justified or vindicated, you could say, by her children. That's why today's title of the message is Wisdom Vindicated. The ministry is vindicated by the fruit it produces, just like the training in the Olympics is vindicated by the fruit that it produces. Last week, Cliff reintroduced us to John the Baptist, and I'm thankful for that because I don't need to go back and do all that work to reintroduce you to John the Baptist I won't say much. We hadn't heard from him really since Luke chapter 3 when he was out preaching repentance and baptizing people and telling them to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. But it's interesting to note that a good portion of Luke's gospel, it begins with focusing on John the Baptist. We see that Gabriel announced John the Baptist's birth. We see that a little later, Gabriel visits Mary, and Mary takes a trip to see Elizabeth and that newly pregnant mother of John The Baptist was there, and she's encouraged. And then in Luke chapter 1, you have the 
uh, prophecy of Zechariah, his dad, a long and detailed prophecy about not only the life of John and what he will do, but also what's going to be produced out of his ministry. And it ends this way, chapter 1 of Luke. And the child, referring to John, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And you really don't hear from him in, for the next 30 years until he does appear in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. That's Luke chapter 3, verse 3. And some Jewish people came out to be baptized. And some religious leaders came out to see what was going on. And Jesus had some, or I should say, John had some strong words for these religious leaders who came out to check what was going on. They didn't think they needed to partake in this baptism of repentance, which wasn't a mere ritual. It was actually an indication that you were humbling yourself before God in preparation for his coming Messiah. It's that you received John the Baptist's message as a prophet from God, and therefore were going to be baptized by him. Well, when these religious leaders came out to check out what was going on here, John had some sharp words for them because he knew that they were counting on their ethnicity to be right with God. They were counting on their being the chosen people of God as a nation to have right standing with him rather than personal repentance and faith. They were relying upon their ethnicity, upon their religion, rather than a personal relationship and repentance towards God. And so John's words to them was, quote, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. What matters is personal repentance and faith towards God. Well, John's ministry was all in preparation for the Messiah. He was the one setting the sage for the Messiah, the Christ. And that's why we all love that passage in John 3.30 when he says, when he, he, had, he was now exiting out of the ministry limelight, so to speak, he says in John 3.30, he, referring to Jesus, the one he had paved the way for, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that is the heartbeat of every believer, is it not? Yes. We want to be in the background. We want, to be, we, want to, we want to let Jesus come into the limelight and get ourselves out of it, right? And so that, that passage resonates with us. We love to hear that from John. Well, that's what he was doing. And so he steps way back. So we don't really hear of him much up until what we hear of him in chapter 7, verses 18 and following, which is what Cliff talked about Last week, we hear about him in John or in Luke 5:33, when the religious leaders ask Jesus why his disciples lived differently than John and his disciples. John's, John's disciples fasted and often made prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. This is what the religious leaders are saying. But yours eat and drink. So why is there this difference? But you just don't hear anything about John again until verse 18 of chapter 7, when John doesn't even come and personally enter the scene. He actually sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, listen, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Christ? Or should we wait for somebody else? And remember how Jesus offers him compelling evidence. He doesn't tell John to just get with the program. He gives him evidence. Now this is John, uh, Luke 7, 22 through 23. Go and tell John what you have heard, seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Which is going to be a key verse as we move into the next passage. So he turns from that engagement with John's disciples to now turning to the crowd. And that's what Luke tells us. Verse 24, if you follow with me, it says, When John's messengers had gone... 
got this message from Jesus. Now they're going to go back to John and report to John what Jesus had said about his ministry and the compelling evidence that he has provided in his life. He is the Christ. Now Jesus, seeing that they had gone, began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And Jesus is now going to launch into a mini-sermon, you might say, about the ministry of John. It's important for people to know who John was, but also to recognize the fruit of his ministry. So Jesus begins as he always does, or I shouldn't say always, but regularly does as the master teacher. He begins with questions. doesn't just come out of the gate spouting statements. He asks questions to get people to think about what's going on, to get people to think more deeply. And that's how he starts here, turning to the crowd from the others and now saying, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's now addressing the people who had gone to see John in the wilderness, who had received from him his message, and he's now asking them questions. And we're going to read all of these questions together because it, in order to get the meaning of the, the couple of first questions, we need to read all of them together. So let's read them together. He says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. By asking these questions, Jesus is actually directing the people to the right answer. He's not necessarily implying that they had gone out to see these things. Like, for example, he's not implying that they did actually go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. He's actually affirming that that's not what they went out to see. They did not go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. They did not go out to see someone dressed in splendid clothing. Jesus is pointing out who John was not in order to get to the description of who he truly was. You did not go out to see a weak, morally flimsy man. Oh, reed shaken by the wind. That's not what you went out to see. You would not be like, you wouldn't likely see that kind of man living in the wilderness, living on locusts and wild honey. You'd heard about him, and you heard that he was living out there in the wilderness and eating locusts and wild honey. And it's not likely that a weak kind of man is going to be bringing that kind of life upon himself. So you didn't go out to see that, nor did you go out to see a man dressed in fancy, fine clothing. Why? Because that kind of person also doesn't live out in the wilderness. So who did you go out to see? What kind of person did you go out to see? And he affirms what they went out to see. He says what? He says, a prophet. They knew he was a prophet. They had heard that he was a prophet, and that's why they had gone out. But now Jesus is going to actually add something to that. John was not merely a prophet. He was, as he said, more than a prophet. He is a prophet, but he is in a special category of prophet, which is why Jesus, quoting Malachi 3.1 with perhaps Exodus 23.12 sprinkled in a little bit, quoting mainly from Malachi, saying, Behold, I sent my messenger, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. Jesus is now applying this passage to John to say, You want to see a prophet, but this is a special category of prophet because this prophet unlike any other prophet of the Old Testament, is paving the way for the Messiah. He is the forerunner, you might say, of the Messiah. He is the one who rolls the red carpet out. He is the one who gets the privilege of baptizing this Messiah. 
Yes, John is a prophet. He is a prophet like Isaiah. He is a prophet like Ezekiel and Amos, but he is more than Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos. He is the Messiah's forerunner, predicted specifically in the Old Testament. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, all of those Old Testament prophets were important, vitally important. They spoke God's word directly to the Jewish people. And that's what John is doing, but he's doing even more than that. He holds a special place in redemptive history. He has the privilege of preparing the people for and announcing the arrival of their Savior, their Messiah, their King, their Lord. He is the one who gets to roll out the wet red carpet before the Messiah steps on the scene. And in a sense, all the Old Testament prophets did this, right? Many Old Testament prophets spoke specifically of the Messiah who was to come. And so we're preparing people for that coming. And then even saying, you need to repent in light of God's coming judgment. But only John the Baptist had the high honor of personally ushering in the Messiah's first coming and telling the people, behold, your Messiah is here. Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John got to do that. And this background helps us unlock exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 28. I got, I got to tell you, if you're like me, verse 28 has tripped me up for the longest time. And it wasn't until I taught through this book of Luke in the young professionals or the young adults class uh, several years ago that it finally opened up. So if you're like me, maybe you've read this verse and been like, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. And that's okay because I was there about four years ago too. What is Jesus? Well, what we just heard from what Jesus said in verse 27 helps us unlock it. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, how could Jesus make a statement like that? Because elsewhere, Jesus very clearly rebukes the disciples for thinking in terms of greatness. Right? Mark 10 is an example. And if we're all sinners, then how can someone be greater than somebody else, right? Well, Jesus is not talking about great greatness in terms of moral or spiritual superiority. John, he's not saying that John is spiritually or morally superior than everyone else who ever lived. Jesus is talking specifically about John's role in redemptive history, in terms of roles and privileges in redemptive history, being the forerunner of the Messiah is about as good as it gets. Isaiah was the man. I mean, he was awesome. I love the book of Isaiah. But man, to be there with the Messiah and get to welcome him here and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and baptize him. and huh, Wow, it, that's about as good as it gets. No one else in redemptive history, not Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Amos, Jonah, Malachi, as important as they were, and there are, there are more prophets than that. They're all important. Only John the Baptist had this high honor of welcoming the Messiah with his own hands. This is as good as it gets. He is, in terms of role in redemptive history, he is the greatest man born of woman. Well, until the Messiah actually steps on the scene, right? And that's Jesus' point with that next statement, because Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
Now, okay, if you got the first part, you might be still wondering, okay, how does that fit together? What does it mean to be least in the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God is a reference here to those who truly believe in this Messiah and who gain entrance into the kingdom. Faith in Christ, true faith in Christ, is what grants you access into the kingdom of God. Jesus said this, he said this in John 3, he said, truly I say to you, he said this to Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders who was searching and considering the claims of Jesus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth comes by way of faith in Christ. And the person with the smallest, seemingly most insignificant role in that kingdom is more blessed and privileged and gets to experience an even greater honor than being the forerunner of the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying. So to live on this side of Christ's death and resurrection, to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be born again, to be forgiven of all your sins, to be brought into the new covenant is a greater privilege, a higher honor, and more blessed than to be John the Baptist, who got to welcome in the Messiah with his own hands. Maybe you've thought, hey, I would like to have baptized Jesus. That would have been awesome, right? And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who you are. You may have this teensy little role in the kingdom. You got a teensy little role. You serve, you're faithful, but it's a small role. Guess what? You have a higher privilege and higher honor in knowing Christ this side of his death and resurrection than even John the Baptist had welcoming Jesus as his forerunner. Is that amazing or what? That's what Jesus is saying here. To be a believer today is a greater honor than to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was still part of that old covenant era, you could say. During his ministry, Jesus Christ ushers in the new covenant, and to be part of that new covenant is even better than being an old covenant prophet who gets to welcome the Messiah. We are people of high, high privilege and honor in knowing Jesus Christ. Well, there was a response among the crowd to these statements, a contrasting response. Let's find out what this response is was like. Jesus is, is giving this mini-sermon on John. Some are on board, some are not. Verse 29, let's see what this response was like. There are two kinds of responses. The first was from the people, and the other response was from the religious leaders, who Luke identifies as the Pharisees and the lawyers. And Luke gives this parenthetical comment in order for us to understand what this response was like, because this is going to be vital to understanding Jesus' statements later. The people, upon hearing that Jesus, or that upon hearing Jesus classify John as the greatest among those born of women, the greatest man who had ever lived, they, it says, justified God or declared God just or vindicated God. You might be wondering, what does that mean? There, there might have been a hum, you know. You could just imagine Jesus is preaching, and kind of like if I were to say something up here, and all of a sudden you guys start turning to each other, and there's a hum going on, like comments back and forth saying, God's just, God's, God is glorious, God is righteous, God is right, God is acting in the right way. That, that might have been what was happening here. 
Why would they say this? Why would, why would the people respond this way? Because it, it feels a little strange. You're not entirely sure. And this is, this is what was happening. The people said this because their willingness to undergo John's baptism was an indication that they were doing what God wanted them to do. They recognized that God's requirement of repentance was good and it was right. And they were now walking in the right path in distinction, contradistinction, to the religious leaders. They could see that the hypocrisy of the religious leaders was not the way someone should live. But that repentance and faith were how someone should live before God. So recognizing that they had been baptized by John, saying, we, we, did you hear that? He's the greatest of all people born to, to women. He's the greatest man who've ever lived. And we are baptized by him. God is just. God is good. They recognized that God's repentance was of requirement of repentance was good and right. And that's what happens when you hear God's truth and truly obey it. You praise God because you see the righteousness of his conduct, the righteousness of his deeds, the righteousness of who he is. They were overjoyed at the reality that they were now following in God's right path by being baptized by John, which meant that they accepted John's message, which meant they accepted John's Messiah. So they're, they're, they're declaring God just. This is the right path, and we are on it. Praise be to God. Their actions, however, and their response is clearly contrasted to the Pharisees and the lawyers' response, the religious leaders, which is, you could say, just a great irony, is it not? When those who are entrusted with the truth are the ones who are least likely to recognize it? Is that not one of the greatest ironies we've ever seen? And that's what's happening here. Luke explains it to us. The, the response of the people is, is different than the response of the Pharisees and the lawyers. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. You might be thinking, well, well who cares if you're baptized? This is, it's not all about ritual anyways. Remember, their unwillingness to receive the baptism meant that they were unwilling to receive the message of repentance. They didn't think they needed any. But I want us to notice something here. This is, this is vital. There are a few weird, uh, words here that we need to sort out because they help us unpack and unlock the remaining portion of this passage. I want you to notice in verse 29 the word people. When all the people... And then in verse 31, if you have the ESV, it says people again. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Now, I love the ESV, but I think the NASB nails it here. I think it gets it right here. Instead of verse 31 saying, to what then shall I compare this people, it should probably say, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? The reason I believe that is because the word for people in verse 29 is the Greek word laos. There's another word for crowd, and that's in verse 24. That's a word different from laos, and that word does mean crowds. It can mean crowds, people, and so can verse 29. But I think what Luke is doing here is he's using different words in order to help us see that there is a difference in response between these two groups of people. 
There's the crowd, and this crowd is made up of people, and it's made up of Pharisees and lawyers, and now Luke is going to distinguish them by using these two distinct words. And the reason why this is so important to get this right, I believe that the New American Standard gets this right, is because this is going to help us understand who Jesus is talking about in verse 32. Who are the children sitting in the marketplace? Who are they? We need to know these things. This is vital to unlocking this passage and, and interpreting it correctly. And I think getting these words right is exactly the way to do that. So here's, here's I'm going to read the New American Standard Bible starting in verse 29 through 31. It starts like this. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Then Jesus says in verse 31, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? Luke places Jesus' words about the men of this generation immediately after his parenthet uh, Luke's parenthetical comment about how the two groups within the crowd responded to Jesus' statements about John the Baptist. The word for men fits here, because it distinguishes the religious leaders from the people and because the religious leaders in Israel were always men. Furthermore, the religious leaders were the ones accusing of Jesus hanging out with sinners, something that he's going to mention here in verse 34 a little later. So when Jesus asked, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation, I would argue he's referring specifically to the religious leaders. What are the religious leaders like? How have they responded, what have they been like since John started his ministry? This is what they've been like. Verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And there is a, just a, a ton of debate about what this little verse means. And anytime you are reading your Bibles and you get a little tripped up on what a verse might mean, what is the best thing to do? Usually it's to continue reading, and that's exactly what helps us in this case. Look at verse 33. What does Jesus mean by this little mysterious statement about flutes and dancing and dirges and weeping? What's this, what's this all about? Well, let's look in verse 33. For, that's the first clue, Jesus is now going to explain to you what he means. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What is Jesus saying here? He is simply saying that the religious leaders in Israel are unable to recognize God's will when it's right there in their face. They cannot see true righteousness. They cannot identify true preaching. It doesn't matter what style of ministry brings God's word. It can be delivered by a man who lives by himself in the wilderness, who wears strange clothing, and who eats locusts and wild honey, and you will label him a demoniac. Okay, you don't like Jonathan the Baptist's strange diet and living by himself in the wilderness? Okay. Well, here the Messiah comes eating and drinking like normal people. 
and you call him a glutton and a drunkard, and then you fault him for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. In other words, neither John the Baptist nor Jesus satisfied the religious leader's expectation for what true religion should look like. The religious leaders in Israel didn't want a religion of personal repentance. They didn't want a religion of personal faith in the living God. They wanted a religion of ethnic privilege. They wanted a religion of personal honor. They wanted a religion of personal prestige. They wanted what they wanted, and neither John nor Jesus fit their desires. John and Jesus did not dance when the religious leaders played the flute. John and Jesus did not weep when the religious leaders sang a dirge. All that means is that John and Jesus didn't do what the religious leaders wanted them to do. John and Jesus didn't fit their vision of what true religion should look like. Me, 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 me. And John and Jesus are saying, God, 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 God. Repentance, repentance, repentance. John the Baptist and Jesus didn't fit the Pharisees' self-righteous, greedy, proud, hypocritical expectations, so it didn't matter how John or Jesus conducted their ministry. If John and Jesus were preaching true righteousness and repentance and forgiveness of sins, the, re the religious leaders, this is key now, the religious leaders would find some superficial reason not to listen to their message. You could kind of imagine it this way. You know, we're watching the Olympics and we're hearing all these interviews. You know, you go up and you interview the person afterwards. And it could have gone like this. Here, here let's do a little interview of the religious leaders. What do you think about John? You know, he's just too much of an aesthetic. He doesn't enjoy God's good creation the way he should. He's, he's, he's kind of weird. This locust and wild honey, you know what? He's probably possessed by a demon. Oh, okay. Well, okay, okay. Got it, got it. Uh, could you tell me then, what do you think about Jesus? What are your thoughts about him? Could you explain that to me? You know what? He's just not disciplined enough. He's clearly in love with the pleasures of this world, all this eating and drinking. He obviously doesn't possess the moral clarity about who he should hang out with, all these tax collectors and sinners. That's probably how the interview would have gone. Fickle. Superficial. Making up excuses. Well, Jesus has one response for these religious leaders, these religious leaders who are spiritually fickle, unwilling to yield to God's truth, even if it's delivered by two very different ministries. You want to test the heart of someone? Give them the same message with two totally different people and see how they respond. That's what we have here. Two completely different styles of ministry rejected both by the religious leaders. You can have two different leaders, they're two different uh, teachers, two different ministries, but the fruit of these ministries will be all the vindication that John and Jesus need. Jesus ends his mini-sermon with this phrase. We've already looked at it. I've, I said that it was really key to helping us understand the passage as a whole. Yet wisdom is justified, or, or better yet, vindicated by all her children. What he is saying is that the fruit of the ministry is what matters most. The wisdom of one's ministry will be seen in the people that it produces. What kind of people were the Pharisees producing? We're told what kind of people they were. Jesus even says it in Matthew 23. The Pharisees would travel 
to find proselytes, they'd work hard to create followers. And those followers, Jesus says, were twice as much the son of hell as they were. They're creating Pharisees, creating little Pharisees, the blind leading the blind, flesh giving birth to flesh, sin giving first, uh, uh, birth to sin. That's what they were creating. But John and Jesus are garnering father, uh, followers who had humbled themselves before God. These are the kind of followers that John and Jesus were getting. They, had, they were people who were humbling themselves before God. They were people who were having their sins forgiven. They were people who were walking in love for God and for love for others. They were bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. These are the kind of followers that John and Jesus were getting. There were tax collectors who were reforming their tax collecting so that they wouldn't collect more than what was warranted. We see that in Luke chapter 3. There were soldiers who became content with their wages and who were no longer using extortion to make money or make false accusations against others. There were people who are now becoming more generous with their possessions, sharing their tunic when they had two. There were Roman centurions demonstrating humble faith in the Messiah. There, there were prostitutes, the people who are looked down the most in the society, finding forgiveness in Christ and lavishing Christ with love. Having their lives transformed by the gospel and experiencing a welling up of great love and worship for the living God. Those are the kinds of people that John and Jesus were producing. The ministry is vindicated by the fruit it produces. The religious leaders had rejected John and Jesus's ministries for superficial, irrelevant reasons. But the, John, the fruit of John and Jesus' ministries demonstrated that they were the real deal. John was sent by God to prepare the way of the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. Different men, same message, same fruit. And there's just an incredibly practical lesson here that I want to tease out for a moment. This is so full of rich, practical wisdom here. The unbelieving, self-centered, self-righteous heart will latch on to superficial reasons to not listen to true preaching. That's just a rule you can take home. The unbelieving heart will find any reason, any reason at all, not to listen to true righteousness, to escape the call of repentance. There are a myriad of faithful biblical ministries in the world, thanks be to God. You know, if we just open up, there's a lot of garbage out there, but praise be to God, there's a lot of good stuff out there too. A lot of good churches, thank, thankful to God for His work here even in this area, in, in the nation and around the world. There are men who preach repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They preach sound doctrine, but they may talk differently, they may dress differently, they may eat differently. The proud heart, however, will grab onto those superficial differences and make those the reason why they won't listen to godly wisdom. They make those the reason why they won't listen to the godly minister. Self-righteousness, pride, and unbelief makes us spiritually fickle, just like these religious leaders were. That's what it does. It makes us spiritually fickle. We can't be satisfied. doesn't matter who's delivering the word. And there may be people, let me bring this home here. There may be people here today or listening in. You may be, maybe you're listening in for the first time or you've been listening in for a while or you, you've been joining us for a while and you're about ready to sign off of YouTube or leave the church, leave this place altogether 
because you don't like the style of music, or you wish I would wear a tie when I preach, or you wish Cliff would wear a Hawaiian shirt when he preaches, or the announcements are too long, or the service is too short, or we don't have enough brownies at the fellowship meal, or we don't have a drum set during worship. We're working on that, by the way. But, but if that's you, I would want you to consider for a moment whether or not there's a deeper reason for why you want to look elsewhere. Now, we all have our preferences, and that's fine. And there's other good churches in the area, and that's, that's fine. But we need to ask the reason why we're hopping from church to church might be because we are simply unwilling to hear the word of God, and we're simply giving shallow reasons to cover up that real reason. Don't look primarily at the superficial differences in a ministry or church. Look mainly at the content and the fruit of that ministry and that church. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. That's Jesus' message to the religious leaders and to us and to you today. Because that's what ultimately matters, isn't it? The, the content of the ministry and the fruit of the ministry. Regardless of their, the differences in their ministries, John and Jesus preached the truth. And the, the disciples that this truth produced vindicated John and Jesus' respective ministries. What were they preaching? They were preaching the truth of God's mercy upon sinners. That God has had mercy upon sinners. That's what made the Pharisees so irate. See, the idea of mercy for the self-righteous heart, it's just, you don't want to hear it. I don't need mercy. I, actually, I need God to, to bend the knee to me and my righteousness. The truth of God's mercy upon sinners and the need, the response for humble, repentant faith in the Messiah created disciples who, here, here's, here's the fruit that was being produced by their ministries, disciples who loved God, loved others, and bore the tangible, practical fruits of repentance. That's true religion. True love and worship for God. Pursuit of holiness. Loving others. Pouring out your life for the good of others. Intangible, real deeds of kindness and love. The Pharisees were all wrapped up in ritual, in form, in appearance. No reality, no love for God, no love for people. That's what the forgiveness that God gives does. That's what it does. The gospel transforms lives. It changes hearts and minds. It restores and heals sinners. That's, that's the good news. That's what we want to tell people. We don't want to be these stuck-up Pharisees. We want to go and share this wonderful mercy with others. It turns us away from selfish, self-destructive living to God-centered, people-focused living. That's what the gospel does. And we're all on the road. I know we, we want to be further than we are right now and, and more mature and, and so on. But nevertheless, at a basic level, this is what the gospel does. That's the kind of fruit that the truth produces. And that's what we should look for. That's what Jesus instructed his listeners to look for. Real wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, if I can speak to some of you specifically now, there may be some here today who wouldn't even claim to be a Christian, or you're listening in right now, and you wouldn't even claim to be a Christian. Perhaps you're in this room right now, or you're out in the courtyard, or you're listening in your home on YouTube. 
or while you're driving. And you would just be very honest, and I appreciate your honesty, that you're not a believer. You don't believe in Christ. You're not ready to accept his claims. And Jesus would say to you today, wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is vindicated by the fruit it produces. God's children are sinners. We're still, all of us here are sinners. Those of us who've been transformed by the gospel, we're still sinners. We still struggle. We still fall. But we're marked by repentance. It's true that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is really a believer. And maybe that's tripped you up too. You've seen people claim to be a Christian and, and it's, you've seen a lot of hypocrisy, just blatant, glaring hypocrisy without repentance, without remorse. And maybe that's tripped you up. It's true that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a believer, but this is vital. It's also just as true that the power of the gospel and the reality of Christ can be seen in transformed lives. Listen, if you're an unbeliever, have the courage to really consider what the scripture says about Christ and then consider the transformed lives that Christ has produced in your midst. There's a lot of them here today for you to get to know. Jesus has died for sinners and risen from the dead. He is the risen living king, and he is proving his reality every day by saving sinners just like you. And there are a lot of saved, transformed sinners here among you right now. And I encourage you to get to know them. You know, a few years ago, we published a book called Rescue by Grace. Maybe some of you own it. When we published it, we gave it out to all of our members at the time. And it's a wonderful book because all it is is people just telling their story about how God saved them and how their lives were radically transformed. And they were radically transformed whether they grew up in the church or whether they are saved out of utter debauchery. Their lives were turned upside down. They were transformed to love God and to love people and to bear that love out in tangible good works and a love for Christ. And you know what? We had to start writing a new one because God is constantly saving sinners and giving evidence and giving evidence of his existence and his reality and his power in the lives of people. Now, I love apologetics and I love studying apologetics and I love all the historical arguments and I love reading about all the, the, the geographical proof and evidence and I love all that. Amen to all of that. But you know what is powerful? It's a life changed inexplainably by the gospel. So we have another book, Rescue by Grace, Volume 2. And you know what? Maybe we'll have Rescue by Grace, Volume 95, <laughs> by the time we're dead. Me and Cliff and the others who are putting these things together are gone. Because you have to keep writing these books and producing these books because there will always be testimonies of God saving sinners. It can't stop. And it will not stop. See, that is Christ vindicating wisdom, his wisdom, his gospel. It's vindicated in the fruit that it produces. It was vindicated in John's ministry. It's vindicated in Jesus's ministry. And we'll have to keep publishing more and more of these volumes. God, I I pray to God that we're able to. Why? This is why. Because Jesus is real. 
His gospel is true, and he is still saving sinners to this day. And if you don't know him today, I would encourage you, I would exhort you to turn to Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from Jesus, this powerful word about John's ministry, about your son's own ministry. Same message, a message of repentance towards God and faith in God, trusting in your sufficient covering of our sin, not trusting in ourselves. God, I pray that this message would encourage the saints and that it would be effective in saving sinners. Even today, God, we ask you for that work. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.